You're listening to In Country, a podcast covering Marvel Comics, The Nom. Hello and welcome to episode 53 of In Country, a podcast that is taking a complete look at the Marvel Comics series, The Nom, which is brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet and Radio Network. I'm your host, Tom Panneries. Last time around, I took a look at issue 45, and I'm moving right along this time with issue number 46, which takes place on April 30th, 1970, and our song this time around is Norman Greenbaum's Spirit in the Sky, which was number three on the Billboard Hot 100 on May 2nd, 1970. The song was Greenbaum's only hit, and has been featured on various VH1 countdown shows about one-hit wonders over the years. Number three was the highest position that it would hit on the United States charts, although it would hit number one in the UK. Our comic, On the Clock, was released on May 29th, 1990, and was cover dated July 1990. It was written by Chuck Dixon, Wayne Van Zant did the breakdowns, Tony DiZaniga did the finishes, Phil Felix was your letterer and colorist, Don Daly was the editor, and Tom DeFalco was the editor-in-chief. Our cover shows a character named Trader sitting among boxes and guns in the supply depot with needles and medicine in the de- on the desk in front of him. He's saying, that's right boys, the Trader's got it, genuine, U.S. issue. I don't have a cover credit. Uh, It didn't match up 100% with what's inside, but it's definitely eye-catching enough, and quite a number of covers of the series have been. We open on April 30th, 1970, west of Bien Hoa in the Republic of South Vietnam. An officer is giving orders, saying that Nixon has ordered an incursion into Cambodia to flush out the VC, and they have 60 days to do so. They begin to board helicopters, and someone asks where a traitor is. He's late because he is finishing up a little deal of his. He gets grief from his gunnery sergeant for trading government-issued material, and then points out that it was sea rations for gym socks, which is something they can all use. The gunnery sergeant says, well, he supposed the men will appreciate his thoughtful gift, putting emphasis on the word gift, and traders all like, of course. They board the chopper and head to Cambodia, joining up with an armored unit for whom they've been assigned as the scouting unit. And after 30 clicks over the border, the ARVN is supposed to take over, and they'll do it on their own. The gunnery sergeant puts a soldier named Holland Hallen on point with a newbie named Rigby. Hallen's not pleased, but there's no choice. Later, they enter Cambodia, and when talking about whether or not they will run into the NVA, Trader says he can get a lot of money for NVA stuff. Hallen spots a village and re- relays it back to the gunnery sergeant, who orders an airstrike. Hallen marvels at how beautiful it all looks when Rigby comes up behind him and trips. Hallen grabs Rigby by the collar and tells him that he's short and he's not going to risk his life on account of his mistakes. They return to keeping point, and then everyone heads up to the village. Trader starts scouting for loot and picks up about as much as he can carry. They clear out and blow the village, then they move on. Hallen and Rigby are still on point. They make their way through the jungle when two VCs shoot Rigby. Hallen takes care of them, but then more fire on him. He calls for backup, and the gunnery sergeant tells him that he's pinned down so they can't call an airstrike. 
They're going to flank his position and get him out of there as best as he can. Helen throws two grenades and then gets to Rigby. The others arrive and the medic, Ward, goes to give him medical attention. Ward asks for morphine and they can't find any. It's not that he forgot to pack the morphine, you see. It's that Trader has taken it to use for business. Hallen is pissed off and walks away and finds Trader, who is looting the bodies of the VC dead. Hallen asks if he wants a souvenir and starts shooting him with a discarded AK-47, hitting Trader in the leg. He's about to shoot him again when the gunnery sergeant tackles him and points his pistol at him, telling him, it's not worth it, especially when Hallen has less than three weeks before his wake-up. He then asks the trader traded away the morphine. Trader says that he got four cases of chivas for it from the RVN, ARVNs. The gunnery sergeant says that Trader will walk the rest of the 30 clicks and then get choppered out and will spend the rest of his time in Vietnam in the LBJ. Hallen asks about Rigby. He's dead, the gunnery sergeant says. Look, I know you feel responsible not me, stupid pogey got himself killed, Hallen says. I don't I didn't make him walk slack, Gunny. Don't mean nothing to me. Nothing means nothing to me. The guys begin walking again and our caption reads The deadline set by President Nixon for the Cambodia incursion was met and all United States forces returned to Vietnam. In sixty days the combined Air V and an American task force de- de- destroyed twenty five hundred and fifty tons of ammunition an estimated year's supply for the NVA, as well as over 7,000 tons of rice, a six-month supply. The NVA and VC suffered 11,349 casualties. The operation was considered an unqualified success by all. If I had been reading the NOM off the stands back in 1990, I don't know if I would have liked this issue or not. It's a fill-in issue that does not feature the regular cast of characters and is written by somebody else. So it would have definitely seemed off-putting on some level, especially after, uh, well, if I hadn't read the last issue, but even after last issue where you had the return of Top, which created a little bit of tension that isn't being followed up on here. But I'm reading this with the knowledge of what went on behind the scenes and having read several issues ahead, and that actually made me appreciate this issue a little bit more. So in the grand scheme of things, it is a good one. And that sounds like a bit of a stretch for someone to appreciate a story. But it's not a bad story at all, because Dixon gives us some tension and plenty of action, as well as some good character beats, especially concerning Helen, a character that he will come back to in later stories on his regular run. So even though I didn't realize it until I read those later issues, Dixon is planting some seeds here, because Helen will be the centerpiece of a later story that shows what happens when he does leave Vietnam and goes back home to Baltimore. But that's later on, and here we have a cover that is a bit misleading, because we don't actually see Trader giving anything away, or any morphine to anyone. But considering the plot of the issue, it's possible that the cover could be the first page of the issue, showing what happened before they boarded the choppers. And you'd think that Trader would be the complete focus of the issue as well, but he's more of a side character, the one who causes a problem that gets someone killed. Hallen proves to have a very short fuse, which is something we'll see later on, and I think that if this hadn't had several issues between it and the major storyline that features Hallen, or if Dixon had been writing the series regularly at this point instead of having an occasional fill-in issue between other fill-ins and, and uh, three-parted by Doug Murray in the first Punisher storyline, this would have gelled a little more in the overall scheme of things. At the same time, though, I'm glad Chuck Dixon is establishing his own characters as well as his own stories because he is going to be putting his his own stamp on the book in the span of about six or seven issues or so. And I'm curious to see what he does with those characters and if he handles any of the characters that Doug Murray created. The art, just like last issue, is very solid. Dizaniga will be inking Van Zandt for at least quite a bit from here on out, and at this point, Jeff Isherwood 
had already moved over to DC. He was handling the art on Suicide Squad. Dizaniga is a good match, and he and Van Zandt have a good handle on the flow of the action, especially during the firefight between Hallen and the VC, and the emotions and the faces of the soldier on the pages that follow, where Rigby is dying and traitors discover to have sold all the morphine. It's all well expressed, and it's effectively drawn. So for a fill-in, it's a good fill-in, and shows some promise for Chuck Dixon's run of the book a few months down the line. I'll be back after this with historical context, letters, and ads. Okay. I'm going to do the promo now. Really? Finally. Okay, let's do the promo. What do you mean, let's do the promo? I'm the one who has to do it. Well, get on with it then. Okay, okay, here we go. Iron Man. The Incredible Hulk. The Mighty Thor. The Captain America. Wow, being dramatic there, aren't we? Do, do you think it's too much? Should I back off? No, 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 you're fine. You, you're good. Okay. You've seen the Earth's mightiest heroes in the Avengers franchise of films. Now you can enjoy the stories that have inspired those films through the magic of comic podcasting. Magic of podcasting? You sure about that one? Well, yeah, because, you know, we're awesome. Like, magic. Only without actually seeing any magical things. Just go with it, go with it, go with it. Okay. Don't forget to tell them what we're actually doing on the show. Oh, oh yeah, okay. So join Lily Wilson, the awesomest teenage comics fan in the world, mm-hmm. as her father takes her through all the early comics that feature characters from the Avengers franchise of films. And some that aren't in those films yet, but will be. Because we started with the anime before we had a full film. Oh, well, yeah. And don't forget Spider-Man. Sounds like the Avenger, but he's there. Oh, okay. So, um... Maybe it should be that feature characters that have been, are currently, or will one day be in the entire Marvel Cinematic Universe. Better. And where should they go not see this magical podcasty goodness? New episodes can be found... <coughs> do I have to do the voice? Yes, you do. Okay, okay. New episodes can be found at the Complete Marvel Reading Order website, cmro.travis-starns.com and clicking under the Podcasts tab. Or on iTunes by searching Complete Marvel Reading Order, or just search for the name of the show itself. Um, Dad, don't you think we should actually say the name of our show? Oh. Yeah! Avengers! Inspirations! Podcast! Listen and stuff. Yeah, good job, Dad. Thank you. April 30th, 1970, is the day that Richard Nixon announced the incursion into Cambodia. This is a surprise to all and a disappointment to many, which leads to widespread protests. Nixon's reasoning comes in a primetime speech that night, which was about 22 minutes long. Here's a five-minute excerpt courtesy of the Miller Center for Public Policy. Good evening, my fellow Americans. Ten days ago, in my report to the nation on Vietnam, I announced the decision to withdraw an additional 150,000 Americans from Vietnam over the next year. I said then that I was making that decision despite our concern over increased enemy activity in Laos, in Cambodia, and in South Vietnam. And at that time, I warned that if I concluded that increased enemy activity in any of these areas endangered the lives of Americans, remaining in Vietnam, I would not hesitate to take strong and effective measures to deal with that situation. 
Despite that warning, North Vietnam has increased its military aggression in all these areas, and particularly in Cambodia. After full consultation with the National Security Council, Ambassador Bunker, General Abrams, and my other advisors, I have concluded that the actions of the enemy in the last 10 days clearly endanger the lives of Americans who are in Vietnam now and would constitute an unacceptable risk to those who will be there after withdrawal of another 150,000. To protect our men who are in Vietnam and to guarantee the continued success of our withdrawal and Vietnamization programs, I have concluded that the time has come for action. Tonight, I shall describe the actions of the enemy the actions I have ordered to deal with that situation, and the reasons for my decision. Cambodia, a small country of seven million people, has been a neutral nation since the Geneva Agreement of 1954, an agreement, incidentally, which was signed by the government of North Vietnam. American policy since then has been to scrupulously respect the neutrality of the Cambodian people. We have maintained a skeleton diplomatic mission of fewer than 15 in Cambodia's capital, and that only since last August. For the previous four years, from 1965 to 1969, we did not have any diplomatic mission whatever in Cambodia. And for the past five years, we have provided no military assistance whatever and no economic assistance to Cambodia. North Vietnam, however, has not respected that neutrality. For the past five years, as indicated on this map that you see here, North Vietnam has occupied military sanctuaries all along the Cambodian frontier with South Vietnam. Some of these extend up to 20 miles into Cambodia. The sanctuaries are in red, and as you note, they are on both sides of the border. They are used for hit-and-run attacks on American and South Vietnamese forces in South Vietnam. These communist-occupied territories contain major-based camps, training sites, logistics facilities, weapons and ammunition factories, airstrips, and prisoner-of-war compounds. And for five years, neither the United States nor South Vietnam has moved against these enemy sanctuaries because we did not wish to violate the territory of a neutral nation. Even after the Vietnamese communists began to expand these sanctuaries four weeks ago, we counseled patience to our South Vietnamese allies and imposed restraints on our own commanders. In contrast to our policy, the enemy in the past two weeks has stepped up his guerrilla actions and he is concentrating his main forces in these sanctuaries that you see on this map, where they are building up to launch massive attacks on our forces and those of South Vietnam. North Vietnam, in the last two weeks, has stripped away all pretense of respecting the sovereignty or the neutrality of Cambodia. 
The caption boxes on the last page of this issue are correct. The United States did withdraw from Cambodia on June 30th, and more than 350 Americans died in that mission. This has consequences both home and abroad. In Southeast Asia, the effect of this, as well as the bombing of Cambodia has on the rise of the Khmer Rouge and Pol Pot, is worth looking into and might be worth extended study at home at some point in a future special episode. At home, the effect is more immediate. There are massive protests, especially by student groups. They increase and explode over the next few days, culminating on May 4, 1970, at Kent State University. Prior to May 4th, there were protests for two days and one did turn violent as an ROTC building on the Kent State campus was burned. That increased the tensions going into May 4th, which was the day when four students, Allison Krauss, Jeffrey Miller, Sandra Schur, and William Knox Schroeder, were killed by National Guardsmen who fired on the crowd of protesters with live ammunition. Krauss and Miller were protesting. Schur and Schroeder, by all accounts, were walking from class to class and they were simply at the wrong place at the wrong time. The most famous image from the Kent State shootings was a picture that ran in Life magazine. It was taken by photographer John Philo. The picture shows a 14-year-old runaway named Marianne Vecchio kneeling over Miller's body. Vecchio spoke about her experience at, a Kent, at Kent State at a ceremony that commemorated the 40th anniversary of the shootings on April 30th, 2007. This is to my friend Jeffrey Miller. Another year of anguish that you're not here. Time has passed. Time goes on. We miss you here today. You made my life the difference, and for many others too. I will always celebrate what you stood for, no matter what it takes. I'll always be here at Kent for you. I can tell you now, Jeff, your spirit lives. They are all with you now throughout the world. We're so proud of you. To test whether we have forgiven someone is not whether we remember the incident, but in the attitudes and the behaviors we exhibit. We now, we know now we have forgiven someone when we are no longer controlled by the pain. In other words, remember the occurrence but it no longer has the power or the control of our thinking and behavior. And that's what I've learned in 37 years. Not to let them control me or my behavior. I, I think of Jeff's mom all the time. And my heart goes out to her. My, my heart goes out to the students at Kent. They have a lot on their shoulders. But you know, you can be proud for being here. That's why we keep coming back. That's what this whole thing is about. That, that's why we keep coming back. We didn't do anything wrong. Just voicing our opinions right here on this lawn. Yeah. And we have the freedom to do that. And we'll continue to express ourselves that way, in a nonviolent way, like we did 37 years ago. I'm so proud of the students at Kent, and I'm so proud of the faculty for coming to the point where they can face this and embrace it and run with it. We will set such a good example for the rest of the world. Small town 
Kent, Ohio. We'll set, we'll set the record. So I, I thank you for coming out, and it uh, it's been very emotional. Every time I come back, I, I I just can't forget, and I don't want you to forget. Never forget. I think that um, as as the regular people of the United States, I think that by talking to your families, friends, communicating, communicating is the best thing. That's kind of what went wrong 37 years ago. There was no communication. People were afraid, and. Now we have the opportunity to express ourselves to each other and come to some conclusion that the war is no good. War is no good. We need our, we need our soldiers back home with their families again. I know their families miss their sons and daughters over there. Uh, every time I hear something about soldiers being killed, it just it breaks my heart. I, I can just imagine how it feels. I can imagine uh, the mothers and fathers of the four students and also the people who were injured here at Kent State. It's, it's, it's not a way to live. It, it, we can't live like this no more. We got to get along. We have a purpose here. We, we can utilize it and do lots of positive things for people. And and get back the way we were. Thank you. The incident was a flashpoint in the anti-war movement and one of those incidents that is said to have marked the, quote, death of the 60s. About a month after the incident, Neil Young wrote the song Ohio and recorded it with Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young on May 21, 1970. The song was a reaction he had to the photo, photo of Vecchio in Life magazine and became one of the most enduring protest anthems of the era, as well as one of the group's most well-known songs, even though many AM stations, which were the dominant air, radio airplay stations at the time, refused used to play the song because of its political contents. It was, however, played on many FM stations and is now a classic rock radio staple. In its entirety, here is Ohio by Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young.
soldiers and Nixon's coming. We're finally on our own. This summer I hear the drumming. Forget in Ohio. 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 There is no incoming this month. Uh, there's no letter column. Um, and I'm going to flip through the ads really quickly. There's a Wrath of the Black Manta Ninja video game, Nintendo video game ad, um, as seen at the Nintendo World Championships. Forgot that that was a thing back in 1990. Um, now we all want to go out and rent the wizard, right? There's an ad for the Uncanny X-Men uh, Nintendo game. I think this is based on the arcade game, and I remember the arcade game being really good, but I don't remember this at all, to be honest. Bionic Commando again. Capcom's really pushing that. They must have leftover inventory. All monsters are not created equal. The latest monstrous compendiums from Advanced Dungeons and Dragons. We are hitting the dirt again with Off-Road from Trade West for the Nintendo. There is a Chicago Comic-Con at the Ramada O'Hare Hotel in Rosemont, Illinois, July 6th, 7th, and 8th, 1990. Over 200 top artists and writers and editors in the world of comics. Eric Larson, Jim Starlin, Ron Friends, Howard Mackey. They've spelled Mackey wrong. Bob Harris, Van Williams, Team TV's Green Hornet. And then uh, there's another, there's another uh, comic convention ad. The Southern California Comic Convention, June seventeenth, July 29th, August twenty sixth, September thirtieth, and December sixteenth. There's the Dick Tracy "I'm on my way" ad again. Marvel Annuals. Uh, this is a, this is a proper ad for the Days of Future Present, which is taking place in. Fantastic Four and Annual Number Twenty Three, X Factor Annual Number Five, New Mutants Annual Number Six, and X Men Annual Number Fourteen. Uh, the same Spidey themed subscription ad, code name Viper from Capcom, and Nemesis from Ultra Games for the Game Boy, which looks a lot like. Gradius and probably was because I believe Ultra was a sub was kind of was was part of Konami or something to that extent. And finally, it's time for listener correspondence. I've got one this time around. It's from Luke Giaconetti, who wrote me back in December of 2014 about the All Quiet on the Western Front episode. He writes Tom, I just listened to your episode on All Quiet on the Western Front of In Country. As a fellow fan of the novel, I wanted to give you a hearty thumbs up for your coverage of the book, as well as its historical context and the adaptations over the years. I just reread the book earlier this year, so it was very fresh in my mind as I listened to the episode. I also appreciated your use of music, including One by Metallica. The video for that song was my first exposure to the film version of Johnny Get Your Gun, which in turn led me to reading the book when I was in the 8th grade. That song and book helped shape my interest in war in the forms of literature, films, comics, and so forth, which still sticks to me to this day. The video, for one, was pretty heavy for me as a young man of 11 or 12. 
What is democracy? It's got something to do with young men killing each other. It was also dem- demonstrative to me of the power of heavy metal to, quote, say something and not just be the shallow sort of, quote, party rock anthem stuff, which was more popular at the time. Tied to the machines that make me be, indeed. I would also like to point you to another World War I-themed heavy metal song. Iron Maiden, known for many songs about war and combat in many different eras, had a song in their 2003 album Dance of Death entitled Passchendaele, an epic about the harrowing trench battle in the Battle of Passchendaele. Give it a listen. I think you'll find it that it matches what Remark was going for during the trench sequences in the novel, albeit from the other side of the barbed wire. Keep up the great work as I continue to get caught up on in-country Luke. Thanks again for me emailing in Luke. The All Quiet on the Western Front episode is one I'm really, really proud of. It's one of my favorite novels of all time, and because the timing worked out with the anniversary of the start of the First World War, I thought it would be the perfect special. The one video is also one I have been familiar with for, wow, probably since at least high school, maybe even earlier. And you're right, it was one of those videos that was almost the perfect antidote to a lot of the bubblegum pop metal of the late 1980s. And while I know there were other heavier bands with videos, this was important, at least in my mind, because it was a breakthrough for both the band and a different kind of metal than the public was used to seeing at the time, or would only really see if they watched stuff like Headbangers Ball, which was on very, very late. This got into mainstream rotation on MTV, and that's that's pretty impressive. I'm actually going to finish the show this time around with that Iron Maiden song that Luke recommended, Passchendaele. So uh, have a listen to it. I'll, I'll play. I'll play most of it, and um, and play my play my outro over it as well. Um, but I will be back in two weeks with the nom number forty-seven. So until then, thanks for listening and take care. In a foreign field he lay, lonely soldier, unknown grave. On his dying words he prays, tell the world of Passchendaele. You have been listening to In Country, a podcast that covers Marvel Comics' The Nom. The Nom and all of the comics associated with it are copyright Marvel Comics, and since this podcast is intended for entertainment purposes and I make no money off of it, no infringement is intended. Images, clips, and show notes can be found at Pop Culture Affidavit, which is located at popcultureaffidavit.com. Feedback can be sent by email to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. In Country also has a Facebook page, and you can like the podcast at facebook.com slash incountrypodcast. This podcast is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Network of Podcasts, which is a division of the Demanza Corps of Milan, Italy. You can download this podcast and many other great podcasts at twotruefreaks.com. Want to support this and the other Two True Freaks podcasts? Go to twotruefreaks.com and click the Amazon.com link. It costs you no extra money, but really helps us all out. Thank you for listening and come back in two weeks for the next chapter in the saga of The Nom.
See my spirit on the wind Across the lands beyond the hill Friend and foe will meet again Those who died at Passion Dale